Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, April 20th through Sunday, the 23rd of April, feature guest conductor Fabian Gabel and pianist Daniel Trivanov. The program includes Lyadov's Kikimora, Petrushka by Stravinsky, and after intermission, Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Petrushka by Stravinsky. The music lasts about 34 minutes. The Firebird was Stravinsky's first big hit, and it made him famous, almost literally overnight, at the age of 28. Petrushka is that most difficult of artistic creations, the follow-up. The Firebird had not only made Stravinsky the talk of Paris, then the capital of the international art world, capturing the attention of the city's biggest names, including Debussy and Proust, but it had scored a huge success for Sergei Diaghilev, who had taken a risk hiring the young, relatively unknown composer to write music for the Russian Ballet's 1910 season. Naturally, both men wanted another sensation for the next year. Stravinsky already had an idea. While he was finishing the orchestration of the Firebird, he had dreamed about a solemn pagan rite, wise elders seated in a circle watching a young girl dance herself to death. They were sacrificing her to propitiate the god of spring. These powerful images suggested music to Stravinsky, and he began to sketch almost at once. Early in his career, most of Stravinsky's initial musical ideas were inspired by visual imagery. At first, he thought of it as a symphony, but when he played parts of it at the piano for Diaghilev early that summer, the impresario immediately knew that this was music for dance. With Diaghilev's urging, Stravinsky continued working on the score that would eventually become their biggest sensation, Le Sac de Printemps, The Rite of Spring. But in the meantime, Stravinsky got sidetracked. When Diaghilev went to visit Stravinsky in Switzerland at the end of the summer, he was stunned to discover that the composer had begun a completely different work instead. As Stravinsky recalled, Diaghilev was much astonished when, instead of the sketches of the Sacre, I played him the piece which I had just composed and which later became the second scene of Petrushka. For the second time that year, one of Stravinsky's landmark ballet scores started out not as music to be danced, but as an unnamed abstract symphonic score. But unlike The Rite of Spring, Petrushka moved from sketch to stage without serious interruption. What had begun just as a detour from the right now became the main project of the year, and at the same time, the score with which Stravinsky found his modernist voice, the voice that made the right possible. Musically, it had started innocently enough, almost as a kind of warm-up for the right. I wanted to refresh myself, Stravinsky later explained, by composing an orchestral piece in which the piano would play the most important part. The narrative and the title came later, although Stravinsky admitted that in composing the music I had in mind a distinct picture of a puppet suddenly endowed with life. Petrushka is a Russian version of the male half of the Punch and Judy puppets. As with the Rite of Spring, it was Diaghilev who immediately saw the potential in Stravinsky's dazzling music for another dance classic. Diaghilev was so pleased with it that he would not leave it alone and began persuading me to develop the theme of the puppet's sufferings and make it into a whole ballet. When he remained in Switzerland, we worked out together the general lines of the subject and the plot in accordance with ideas which I suggested. 
I began at once to compose the first scene of the ballet. There were still a few details to be worked out, including Stravinsky's fee, 1,000 rubles, and the selection of the painter Alexander Benoit to polish the scenario and provide costumes and scenery. Michel Fauquin soon signed on as choreographer, and Pierre Monteur agreed to conduct the premiere. With this extraordinary team lined up, Stravinsky and Diaghilev now had their sights set on surpassing the success of the Firebird. Aside from Stravinsky's brush with nicotine poisoning in February 1911, work on Petrushka progressed smoothly. Rehearsals were a different story. The dancers and orchestral musicians, innocent of the terrors of the Rite of Spring, still no more than a pile of sketches, found the complexities of Stravinsky's score almost unmanageable. Opening night, however, was a great triumph, crowned by Václav Nijinsky's brilliant dancing of the title role. Brash, bold, exciting, and in-your-face modern, Petrushka was another overnight hit with the public. For the next two years, until the legendary premiere of the Rite of Spring set Paris afire with fresh controversy, Petrushka was the latest word in musical modernism. The scenario is in four scenes. The first and last are public, taking place on the Admiralty Square in St. Petersburg in the 1830s. The middle ones are set in private rooms and focus on individual characters. Petrushka opens with a busy crowd scene, a kaleidoscopic panorama of street dancers, drummers, a magician playing a flute, a street musician with his hurdy-gurdy, and three puppets, Petrushka, a ballerina, and the moor. Stravinsky shifts focus and reshuffles events like a modern filmmaker. Musical passages are cut and spliced. Rhythmic patterns jostle one another. Finally, the solo flute charms the three puppets to life, and they join in a brilliant Russian dance. The two middle scenes are more intimate, relying less on the full orchestra and built of more modestly scaled materials. In the first of these scenes, the spotlight falls on Petrushka, alone in his room, pondering his grotesque appearance and despairing over his inability to win the love of the ballerina. This is the music Stravinsky had first played for Diaghilev with a piano solo, exasperating the patience of the orchestra with diabolical cascades of arpeggios. The orchestra in turn retaliates with menacing trumpet blasts. The outcome is a terrific noise which reaches its climax and ends in the sorrowful and querulous collapse of the poor puppet. When he first began sketching Petrushka, Stravinsky was haunted by the image of a musician rolling two objects over the black-and-white keys of the piano, which led him to the idea of a bitonal effect made by combining the white-note C major arpeggio with the black-note F-sharp major arpeggio. This double-sided sonority dominates Petrushka's scene, the first music Stravinsky wrote, and as the work progressed, it came to represent the conflicting sides of his character, the human versus the puppet. The Moors scene builds to a romantic encounter with the ballerina. She enters to a dazzling high trumpet solo. The lovers dance to waltzes borrowed without apparent apology from Josef Lahner, an Austrian composer who was a friend of Johann Strauss Sr. They are interrupted by the jealous Petrushka. The finale is another surging crowd scene characterized by various kinds of music pushing and shoving against each other. Petrushka enters, pursued by the Moor, who strikes him with his saber. Petrushka falls 
and the crowd grows silent. But when the magician is summoned, he demonstrates that Petrushka is merely a puppet, stuffed with sawdust. The square empties, and then, as the magician drags the puppet off, he sees Petrushka's ghost on the roof of the set, thumbing his nose. This, according to Stravinsky, is the real Petrushka, and his appearance at the end makes the Petrushka of the preceding play a mere doll. Program notes by Philip Husher on Igor Stravinsky's Petrushka. And now on to Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3, a work lasting about 44 minutes. Although Rachmaninoff's music is sometimes confused with the treacly romanticism of the Hollywood soundtracks it once inspired, Rachmaninoff himself was a serious and aristocratic artist. He was one of the greatest pianists in history, an astonishing virtuoso in the historic tradition of Liszt. But there is nothing flashy about his stage manner. Rachmaninoff was surprisingly somber and remote for a crowd-pleasing superstar. He rarely smiled or courted the audience, and even his close-cropped haircut of a kind that is ubiquitous today but was highly suspect at the time, like that of a convict, as Russian bass Fyodor Shalyapin said, suggested a stern presence. Shalyapin also scolded him for his curt, preemptory bows. Much later, Stravinsky called him a six-and-a-half-foot-tall scowl. Rachmaninoff would have become famous if he had done nothing but concertize, but his true aspiration was to become a composer. At the Moscow Conservatory, his teacher, Nikolai Zverev, encouraged him to stick to the piano instead of writing music. But Rachmaninoff tried his hand at composing some piano pieces and an orchestral scherzo, and he even started an opera, Esmeralda. Unable to choose between composition and performance, Rachmaninoff ultimately decided to pursue both, eventually becoming a fine conductor as well. In 1889, the year he and Zverev parted ways, he sketched and abandoned a piano concerto, but the one he began the following year is his first major work, his Opus 1. This is the score that made his name as a composer, and it was completed in a rush of passion and elation, with Rachmaninoff working from 5 in the morning until 8 in the evening and scoring the last two movements in just two and a half days. It would be 10 years, however, before Rachmaninoff would finish his second piano concerto, which quickly became his greatest hit and his calling card. He played it with the Chicago Symphony when he made his debut in Orchestra Hall on December 3, 1909, the first of his eight appearances with the orchestra. Although Chicago didn't get to hear it, by then Rachmaninoff had written a third piano concerto tailor-made for his first North American tour in late 1909. Rachmaninoff introduced the work in New York on November 28th with Walter Damrosch and the New York Symphony. He played it there again in January with Gustav Mahler conducting the New York Philharmonic, only weeks after Mahler's own first symphony in its American premiere was a flop. Rachmaninoff was bowled over by Mahler's meticulous rehearsal method. The accompaniment, Rachmaninoff recalled, which is rather complicated, had been practiced to the point of perfection by his attention to detail and by his refusal to stop working until he was satisfied. Rehearsal ran an hour overtime. 
The New York Times thought Rachmaninoff's playing occasionally lacked brilliance, but that the orchestral accompaniment was outstanding. The New York Herald somewhat half-heartedly called the work one of the most interesting piano concertos of recent years, but noted that its great length and extreme difficulties bar it from performance by any but pianist of exceptional technical powers, an assessment that still holds today. Rachmaninoff played the concerto when he appeared with the Chicago Symphony for the second time in January 1920. Although in 1909 Rachmaninoff was known as one of the great piano virtuosos, he began his new concerto not with solo fireworks, but with almost Mozartian clarity and understatement, a discreet accompaniment to which the piano adds a quiet, simple melody in bare octaves. It's as plain and haunting as chant, and although Rachmaninoff told musicologist Joseph Yasser that the theme came to him ready-made, Yasser wasn't surprised when he later discovered a strikingly similar Russian liturgical melody. Rachmaninoff said that he thought of the piano theme as a kind of song, and he took pains to find an accompaniment that would not muffle this singing. He was understandably delighted with the care Mahler lavished on the orchestral part. As the movement progresses, both melody and accompaniment are explored and developed at length, as is a lyrical second theme. The climax of the movement is the magnificent solo cadenza, as long and tough as any in the repertory, which takes the place of a formal recapitulation. The piano writing is so symphonic, complex, and multifaceted that we barely notice that the orchestra has temporarily dropped out. In the middle movement, intermezzo, a curiously light title for music so big and involved, the piano's entrance is both unmistakable and disruptive because it takes control with its first phrase and leads the music in new directions, eventually settling in D-flat, an unexpected destination for a concerto in D minor. A new waltz theme introduced by the clarinet and bassoon over fancy piano filigree is a cleverly disguised version, almost note for note, of the concerto's monastic opening melody. The finale, which begins fully formed while the intermezzo is still finishing up, is the kind of virtuoso tour de force Rachmaninoff's fans expected in 1909 and courageous pianists still love delivering today. It's also richly inventive with a fantastic, playful scherzando in E-flat as a mid-movement diversion. The ending, predictably, is designed to test the limits of virtuosity and bring down the house. Throughout Rachmaninoff's life, it was fashionable, if not in fact honorable in progressive music circles, to disparage his music. Rachmaninoff had always worried that by splitting his time between playing the piano, conducting, and composing, he had spread himself too thin. I have chased three hairs, he once said. Can I be certain that I have captured one? For many years, Rachmaninoff's stature as a pianist was undisputed, but by the time of his death in 1943, he appeared with the Chicago Symphony for the last time just six weeks before he died, he had been written off as an old-fashioned composer, hopelessly sentimental, out of touch, and irrelevant. As Virgil Thompson told the young playwright Edward Albee in 1948, it is really extraordinary, after all, that a composer so famous should have enjoyed so little the esteem of his fellow composers. The sacrosanct Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians in its fifth edition concluded its dismal appraisal of his output. 
the enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded it with much favor. But in the last few years, his star has been on the rise. Now, as Rachmaninoff always hoped, it is his music and not his piano playing that keeps his name alive. Program notes by Philip Husher on Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>